this is number two in, a, in hopefully a series of five, uh, unless people deplete to nothing by, uh, by session five. Uh, last week we looked at the importance of the glory of God and, and, and tried to, to think through what is that actually. Um, and it, it is all that God is in his total perfection and wonder and marvellousness and, and perfect righteousness and perfect holiness and perfect love and perfection in every single way. And what we said is that that, that holiness, um, if, if we were in the presence of that, it, we would be so afraid because it would be such a challenge to our unholiness, our ungloriousness, our, our sinful selves. And, and what a, um, you know, when we look at characters in, in the Bible, when, when they come close to the glory of God, there is fear and there is, there is collapse. Um, there is just a complete uh, overawedness about that. Um, and yet, what a good thing that our Father is perfect. Because who would want to be in a kingdom where the king was imperfect? Who would want to be in a kingdom where injustice was the norm? Who would want to be in a kingdom where meanness was the norm? Who would want to be in a kingdom where untruth was the norm? So you see, what a wonderful thing it is that, that God in his glory and holiness, is absolute perfection. But here we have the problem, right? His absolute perfection, and what a wonderful thing that is, that that's the kingdom that we are part of and are growing into being a part of. What a wonderful thing that is. But our fear, our, our inability to approach him in that. And, and yet, here he is, the perfect father, um, and wants us to be part of that kingdom. So before we go any further, let's just pray together. Our Father, thank you for who you are, and thank you, Lord, that you, uh, you desire us to know you in your completeness, in your glory, in your holiness, in your righteousness, in your truth, in your grace and mercy. And Lord, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that you will speak to us through it. Lord, you, you want to draw us close to yourself. And Lord, we want that. So Lord, as we study together, we pray that we will know you, that you will speak your truth into our minds, our hearts and our lives, because we ask it in Jesus' name. There's a fascinating verse which I love, uh, two verses actually, in Jeremiah 32, and it's, it's in your notes. Um, and it's in the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 32. And God is speaking, uh, and he says to the people, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. That's great, right? That's what Ray's been talking about for, for five weeks or so. What, what covenant is, it's this one-sided initiative of God, which is so great. So in Jeremiah it says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. In other words, it cannot be broken. 
It cannot be taken away. It's permanent. That I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Why? To frighten them? No. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. How good is that? Uh, and J- John Piper says, you know, what guarantees that you will wake up tomorrow being a Christian? You don't guarantee it. God does. God does. And how securing is that, you know, that, that it's not down to us. It's an initiative of God. I put a little quote there from John Owen, one of the Puritan writers, in, in regard to the glory of God. And John Owen says this, and he's, he's, he's reflecting on uh, Exodus 33. He says, After Moses had seen the works of God, which were great and marvellous, he still found himself unsatisfied. Therefore he prayed that God would show him his glory. It is not enough for us to see the works of God, <clears throat> to, to see the beauty of creation. That's just a reflection of the glory of God. But what, what Moses prayed for was, show me your glory. He knew that the ultimate rest, blessing and satisfaction of the soul is not in seeing the works of God, but the glory of God himself. And one day, we're going we're to do that, right? We're going to be there and we're going to be in the presence of the glory of God and be so overwhelmed with that, uh, that well, it's unimaginable, right? It's just unimaginable. But we will be there and we'll be there by the initiative of God, not by anything that we have achieved. And so, having reflected on that glory of God thing then, um, our, our series of five today, what I want to look at is we can only begin to understand that glory of God as we are united with Christ, as we are in union with him. So that's the focus of today. And next week, we'll look at the, 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 the other part of the triune God in, in terms of the spirit how can we know Christ? Only by the enlightenment of the Spirit as he opens our eyes and our hearts and our minds to that truth. Week four, if we're still here, we will look at what are some of the, the ways that the grace of the triune God works in our lives to show us God's glory. And then finally in week five, so, so what? So what does that mean for us? What do we do when we go out this door? How does it change the way that we relate uh, to people, to the world, to circumstances and so on? So that, hopefully, by the end of week five, you'll, you'll have seen that there, there is a plan in what I'm trying to do and it's not, not just random, right? Okay, the first, thing, the first thing we need to notice is there is a change. There is a change in language in the scriptures about uh, Jesus And that change occurs after the ascension of Christ at the beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, And and during the time of of Jesus' earthly ministry, 
the verb that we use, or the verb that he uses, and the verb that the gospel writers use, is to follow Christ. That's what we are called to do, to follow Christ. So if we look at Luke chapter 9, for example, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Right? And so we, we then move into the, the time when Jesus is crucified, the resurrection occurs, and then the ascension occurs. And now that language of following Christ disappears. I don't know whether you've ever noticed that before, but we're no longer called to follow Christ. That's interesting. What we are told instead is that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. In other words, it's moved from a Christ follow to Christ in. And that's a significant change. And so we, we, we get writings like Paul writing to the Galatians in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Isn't that good? The life I live, I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the change is, I am no longer called to follow, which is our initiative. Rather now it's Christ is in me, which is his initiative, and that drives us, that that takes us through life. Um, John writing about Jesus says, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In other words, we're we're becoming an inseparable unit um, with with Christ who brings us to the Father. And then again in 1 John, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And we'll be looking at that, as I said, in, in session five. And so there's this whole view now that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And how wonderful is that? Um, we, we are changed. We're not trying to chase after Jesus. We are changed by him and indwelt by him. And we're going to have a look at this passage in Ephesians 1, <coughs> which is, uh, I think, one of the most stunning passages of the scriptures um, uh, you know, you, you know how you go back and read and read and read stuff to remind yourself of the truth? This is my go-to. Ephesians 1 and 2 is my absolute go-to in terms of not feeling confident, feeling a bit down. Ephesians 1 and 2, get it out, read the truth, uh, be reminded of what it is. And I want you to notice several things. Um, And I want you to look at those questions that I've written there. As we read through this passage, my questions are things like, who has blessed us? Who predestined us? Whose purpose are we talking about? Whose will are we talking about? Whose grace is it that this passage refers to? Who do we have redemption in? Whose blood is it? Whose riches? Whose wisdom? Whose insight? Whose guarantee? Whose truth? Who sealed us? And how many persons of the Trinity are involved? There's a lot of questions there, right? But let's have a look at this stunning passage and see that all of those questions have the same answer. So Paul writing to the Ephesians says this, 
Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Isn't that just a stunning piece of writing and truth and wonder? And I don't know whether you noticed in him, in him, in him, in him. Uh, it's just fabulous stuff, isn't it? And so it deals, first of all, the first point I want to make is it deals with our past, our present, our future. Um, verse 4 says, we are chosen in him when? Before the foundation of the world. Before you had a chance to do anything. God chooses before the foundation of the world. In other words, there is absolutely no conditionality there. None. He chooses of his own will before the foundation of the world. We can't make a mess of it. How good is that? We cannot make a mess of it because it wasn't up to us in the first place. Then he talks about the present. In him we have redemption, right? It's not something that's going to come in the future. We have redemption now. So good. And then the future, the future is guaranteed, verses 10, 13, 14 tell us. The, in the fullness of time, we have a sealed guarantee of this inheritance. In other words, past, present, future, every aspect of time is dealt with here. And as for those questions, who has blessed us, who predestined? It's him, not us. It's him. And then the big question, which is the focus of today, what is the goal of God in our union with Christ? Why is God uniting sinners to his Son by the Holy Spirit? He is working that all might be, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. 
See, the, the glory of God is good for us because God does things for his own glory. Our redemption is for his glory. He's saying, look, I can take beat up rebellious people and transform them into the image of my son. That's how good I am. And we should be so thankful that that's how good he is. And that we ourselves, verse 12 and 14, might be to the praise of his glory. So why does God bring his people into union with his son, with his son Jesus? He's pursuing his own glory. What a delight that he wants to bring us into relationship with himself. His untainted perfection and holiness. And he's unveiling to the whole created universe the excellence of his wisdom and his mercy and his grace. Doesn't get any better than this, does it? See, it's not that God saw that we would obey or believe of our own free will and then chose us because he could see what our future faith was going to be. Rather, it's that God saw that Christ would obey. Christ would bleed, die and rise again for us. God chose sinners for salvation based on the merit and atonement of Christ, not me. His promised sacrifice. We are in Christ, in and for eternity. We could skip out the door now, right? (laughs) And say, hallelujah, this is good. So in Christ, when we are in Christ, there is an absolute security for us. I talk a lot to to people in schools, um, to young people, um, and, uh, and they have significant concerns about identity, who they are, about uh, meaning, what's life all about, about purpose, what am I supposed to do? They are the three critical issues for every human being. I call them essential deep needs. They are identity, meaning and purpose. And where can we find the truth about those essential questions? And the simple answer is, in Christ. Christ gives us identity. Christ gives us meaning. Christ gives us purpose. Anything else is false. It's funny, isn't it? Because the world would say that we're being led astray. Just as I said, I'm a mad person. Somebody walking past this room now who was not a believer would say, look at those mad people in there believing in this Christ, not being able to stand on their own two feet, you know, and not being able to see things rationally and scientifically. Uh, Are we mad people? Well, we look like mad people, right? (laughs) Weird people, yeah. The community of the weird people. Peculiar people, yeah. Um, I mean, even the very fact that we're sat here on a Thursday morning singing would strike people as weird, right? 
But we are people who are in Christ. We know where our identity and meaning and purpose is. And there are, there are two real main views of identity. We either see our identity as given or we see our identity as earned. And what a great thing it is that we can see the truth that our identity is given. It is given to us by Christ. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to earn our position. Uh, It is given to us. And society offers these interesting options that blur the truth and redefine reality. And the first one, uh, and kids unfortunately suffer from this enormously, more so do adults, is that you are your performance. You are what you do. It's interesting, isn't it, that whenever, whenever people meet one another, what's the first thing they ask? And what do you do? Because identity is in performance. Um, whereas we, we would be saying, are you in Christ? <laughs> that's that's, that's our, our, our greeting, right? That, that's our identity. And this you are your performance means that we, we find our identity, identity through what we can do or not do. Um, and in this view, our, our busyness and our activity, especially our employment, fill the identity void in our hearts and help to define us. And it's interesting, you know, what's the question that, that people ask young people? What do you want to do? You know, what, what do you want to do when you leave school? As though that performance will establish their identity. Um, what do you want to be? Now, the real question that we should be asking young people is, who do you want to be? Now, it's, it's a wonderful thing having grandchildren, isn't it? How many of you have grandchildren? Hey, it's fun, isn't it? Being a, being a grandparent. And, and the conversations you can have with your grandchildren that maybe you didn't have with your own kids, um, and there's a little bit of regret that you didn't have those conversations with your own kids, but you get the second chance, right, to have conversations with your grandchildren. And so talking with my grandchildren is such fun, and I'm constantly reminding them that it's not about what you do, it's about who you are. It's about character. It's, it's about, um, you know, we, we should be saying to our, to our kids and our grandchildren, who do you want to be? Um, do you want to be loving? Do you want to be gentle? Do you want to be faithful? Do you want to be committed? And they're, they're very different things. To, do you want to be a plumber? Do you want to be a doctor? Do you know, can you see the difference? Um, and we should really be changing our questioning. And this whole idea of you are your performance is you, you are your contribution to society or your value-addedness. Um, and, and you can end up being unwanted when you're not useful. And we can see this in our society, right? The most vulnerable in society, the young, the sick, the elderly, those with disabilities, not seen in the same way by many people, right? And, and so we end up with interesting social policy, policies like abortion and euthanasia and the temporary nature of marriage and relationship and so on because... We're basing identity on, are you useful? Are you useful to me? And when you're no longer useful to me, 
you become disposable. Paul Keating was a very interesting politician because he was um, um, interesting uh, policies of socialism, but an interesting conservative social conscience. And when Victoria, the state of Victoria, was planning to introduce euthanasia four or five years ago, he made a very interesting statement. This is what he said. He said, this is a threshold moment for the country. No matter what justifications are offered for the bill, that's the bill to, to uh, uh, place euthanasia on the statutes, it constitutes an unacceptable departure in our approach to human existence and the irrevocable sanctity that should govern our understanding of what it means to be human. The justification offered by the bill's advocates that the legal conditions are stringent or that the regime being authorised will be conservative miss the point entirely. What matters is the core intention of the law. What matters is the ethical threshold being crossed. What matters is that under Victorian law there will be people whose lives we honour and those we believe are better off dead. It is misleading to think that allowing people to terminate their life is without consequence for the entire society. Good words. Sorry? I didn't realise you said that. Yes. And so, you know, if, if we see our value, our identity is based on our performance, then we end up with a disposability factor. Um, a loss of true identity fosters this idea that worn-out people can be equated with worn-out products. And what do you do with worn-out products? You throw them away. And, and therefore, this idea of if your identity is determined by your performance, there comes a point where you're disposable. That's shocking. That's, that's really quite horrific. The second way that, that society looks at identity is through history. What is our history? This is an identity formed by our backgrounds, our family life, our social connections, our ethnic origins, um, our identification with a certain community. Um, and this has been formalised now. I don't know how up to date you are with, with uh, theories, but there's something called critical theory. And critical theory now has been around for about 30 years. And critical theory basically says that society can be divided into two groups of people, the oppressors and the oppressed. And critical theory therefore demands that those who are identified as oppressed should have a louder voice than those who are identified as oppressors. And we end up having um, oppressors and victims. And if, I don't know whether you've noticed in society over the last 20 or so years, but there has been a rise of victims. People who feel as though they're oppressed. And therefore society says, give them a louder voice um, because they are being oppressed. Now interestingly, if you follow that theory through to its ultimate conclusion, God is seen as the greatest oppressor. 
just think, think that through. But if we, if we think we are simply, our identity simply comes from our history, it's not very solid again. The third thing is we say that identity comes from our passions. Um, this is an identity through uh, desire. You can do anything you set your mind to. Well, that's not true. I set my mind to moving stones at the weekend and look at me. <laughs> right? I can't do everything I set my mind to. I tried to keep up with my 14-year-old. No matter how much I set my mind to do that, I could not do that. Right? I cannot be um, uh, an ace basketball player. You know, it, it's silly that I can do whatever I set my mind to. And then there's this whole idea of you do you. You know, your truth is important. And so we talk about your truth and my truth. In all of this, the whole thing about sexual desire comes into play. And so we choose our identity based on our sexual desire, our sexual preference, and so on. Um, and I identify as... That's the phrase of, of the moment, it's the phrase of the 21st century. I identify as. Um, and, and so I choose my own gender. I choose my own identity. <clears throat> and of course that's madness again. And it's, it's driven by Winfreyism. You know, Oprah Winfrey is the, the big goddess of, uh, of uh, US media. And she says, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. Really? That sounds awfully to me like Genesis 3, you will be like God. Satan's first temptation was really a temptation to define our identity on our own terms. He was saying, do this. You can be like God. You don't need to follow God. You can form your own identity. Take matters into your own hands. Form your identity for yourself. But fortunately, we don't have to go down all those rabbit trails. For, for when we come to know Jesus, we are made into new people. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And now Jesus defines us. It, it's not about our performance. It's not about our, our history. It's not about our passions. It's about who Christ is and is Christ in us and are we in Christ and that this tyranny of the, these identity-shaping idols, which is what they are, um, they disappear. Now our fundamental identity is in Christ. God's children have a true identity. Who are we? We are in Christ. See, the better question of who are we is whose are we? That's the real question. Whose are we? Our identity is believers in Christ. And Christian identity must be shaped by the most fundamental truth about us. We are men and women in Christ.
What does that mean? If I was taking a trip from Adelaide to Vancouver, which I did last year, what relationship do I need to have to the plane? Do I need to say, I'm going to follow that plane? I'm going to imitate that plane? Or do I need to say, I need to be in that plane? Because if I'm in that plane, wherever that plane goes, I go. Right? And if I'm in Christ, wherever Christ goes, I am in him. What happens to that plane will also happen to me. What happens to Christ is also what happens to me. And the interesting thing is it doesn't matter if I'm getting on that plane and I'm uh, a business person and I've been on that plane a thousand times and I'm really nonchalant, you know, and I sit in the lounge before I go and I have a little meal and I get on the plane and I put on my eye shades and I fall asleep and I'm really content in the plane. Or I'm a nervous Nelly I've never been on a plane before and I pace up and down thinking, oh, I wonder what it's like, I wonder what it's like. Um, you know, will the plane crash? <laughs> Both people are in the plane. Confidently or not, doesn't matter, right? And sometimes I can lack confidence in Christ being in me and me being in Christ, but it doesn't matter, right? It's like um, uh, Tim Keller talks about the, when the Israelites were crossing the Red Sea in Exodus 14. He says you can guarantee that some people, uh, you know, Moses held out his staff and the sea parted, parted it, and you can guarantee some people said, hey, the sea's parted, we can cross, and they confidently walked through the Red Sea. And you can guarantee that some others went, I wonder if it's going to stay up. I wonder if it's going to stay up. I hope it stays there until I get to the other side. There will, there will be nervous people, right? But Christ did it. They were in Christ doing that, right? And Spurgeon, I I love Spurgeon. Anybody else a Spurgeon fan? That's good, we're all friends together. Um, Spurgeon says this, however weak we are, however poor, however little our faith, or however small our grace may be, our names are still written on his heart nor shall we lose our share in Jesus' love. It doesn't matter about how strong our faith is on Thursday or Friday or Saturday because we're in Christ. So whatever is true of him is true for us. And there's all these other little biblical visuals that we'll, we'll uh, put there just just. As, a, as additional ballast, as additional truth. Um, you know, we've got this visual in, in John 15 of Christ is the vine and we are the branches. Can the branches exist? Can they live without being in the vine? No. The other interesting thing about that is that, that our in Christness is not just an individual thing, it's a body thing. It's we are in Christ together. And that's really important too. We are the temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. And Paul talks about this in two places, in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6. And and he implies that it's both an individual thing and a corporate thing. 
Um, Paul also, also, also talks about we are um, the husband. Christ is the church's husband and we are the bride of Christ, right? So there's this, this union thing and that's why the union of marriage is such a, a critical understanding for us as Christians. See, our identity is defined by our union with Christ. So whatever is true of him is now true of us. So he died, we died to our old selves. He is raised, we are and we will be raised. Death has no no sting for us. He is blameless, we are blameless. He has overcome death and we are freed from sin's pollution and penalty and power. How good is that? He is loved, we are loved. Lastly, this union with Christ, um, we need to talk about union with Christ and communion with Christ. I don't mean by communion, you know, the, the wine and bread component. I'm talking about our relationship, our connection with Christ. Union comes before communion. And our eternal union with Christ is determined by him. And our communion is that experiential connection with him. And even that experiential connection is determined by him and not by us. Because what do we see in Romans 8? And we'll look at Romans 8 in a lot more detail next week. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Romans 8 tells us nothing. Nothing can separate us from communion with him, love with him. In Christ, we are in this eternal covenant relationship that cannot be broken, cannot be diminished, cannot be shattered. It's unbreakable and unchangeable and kept secure and safe in love by God. Now, our communion with God in terms of our ability to feel that love fluctuates, right? Sometimes I don't feel loved. Sometimes I think God feels a little bit distant to me. But that's me. That's, that's, that's me not understanding my union with Christ. And I need to remind myself by maybe going back to Ephesians 1 and 2 that, that God has determined all of this. And therefore my my communion with Christ can, can return. It's a bit like if we're married, right? Do we always like our spouse? Sometimes when I don't like my wife, when she makes demands of me that I don't want to do, <laughs> or you know, I, I feel disappointed by something. But when I remind myself that I have now spent 51 years by the grace of God in covenant relationship with this lady. Of course I love her. Of course I do. And, and so I'm returned to, okay, how do I express that? How, how, do, I, how do I remediate my, my annoyance or my anger, which, is, which I have no right to? So our union with Christ is a totally one-sided act of grace that secures us in covenant with him. 
And as the body of Christ, we need to encourage one another in all of this truth. Just turn with me um, in 1 John chapter 1. Because this is, uh, I think, important in terms of our fellowship in the body of Christ. So the first three verses of, of 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What unites the people of God as a fellowship, as a, as a community, as a body of Christ. It is this, that you have fellowship with us because our fellowship is not just horizontal. Our fellowship is with the Father and his Son. In other words, every person in this room is in Christ and because they are in Christ we are in the presence of the glorious God and because we are in Christ and in the presence of the glorious God we are in fellowship with one another. You see how strong that is? That, that it's not just, oh, we like one another because we all go to Bible study on a Thursday morning. No, we are in fellowship with the Son and the Father and therefore with one another. That's how strong Christian fellowship is. How good is that? Um, and how sometimes we can miss the truth of that. So, to finish, we are united to his life, his joy, his peace, his love. It's not just that we have life and joy and peace and love because we're in him, but that we have his life and joy and peace and love because he is in us. And that is just so marvellous. I've left you with some reading for the week if you feel as though you want to do it. Um, Things to meditate and rejoice over. Just a set of... Um, verses to have a look at if, you know, if you're bored or if you're sitting down having a cup of coffee and you think, oh, what shall I do for the next five minutes? Just have a look at some of those Bible verses because they're all about how we are in Christ, created in him, crucified with him, united with him, being for, he's being formed in us, that we are the body of Christ and so on. There are so many places in the scriptures where this in Christness, this in union with Christ is so obvious. So the triune God has created us for his glory. That's what we looked at last week. He has brought us into union with the Son 
and he secures us and has given us true meaning, identity and purpose. Let's pray. Father, you speak through your word and I pray this morning that that word will filter through our brains, through our hearts, through our lives, through our actions and that we may know you more closely and that we may fellowship more closely with one another. Lord, sometimes we don't feel it, but Lord, it's true. And thank you that you are all truth. You are, you are just wondrously all truth. Lord, and I pray that the truth of who you are and how you have united us in your Son will become more and more real for us each moment of each day because we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.